Welcome to Married to Politics. This podcast focuses on political topics that you accidentally end up discussing with someone way more knowledgeable than you. Except here, I save you the trouble by discussing politics accidentally on purpose. I'm Sarah Goggins, here with my husband, Derek Santola, who is the true political expert. Not unlike most mornings in our house, each episode, Derek surprises me with a key political issue that he is overprepared to discuss while I ask the hard-hitting and often awkward questions until I either understand or tire him out on the topic. So Derek, what are we talking about today? Well, today we're going to discuss Russia and Ukraine, the issue going on in Eastern Europe. Ooh, heavy topic. Yes, very, very heavy topic. So, um, this is the foreign policy issue of the moment, and as uh, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Boris Johnson recently put it, the Russian invasion into Ukraine is the largest land war in Europe since World War II. So our objective of today's podcast is to unpack the conflict, discuss the recent history of Russian-Ukrainian relationships, and um, try to discuss what happened leading up to the invasion on 24th of February of this year and what the uh, response from the international community was. I guess first things first, why is it important that we care? Yeah, so here in the U.S., um, Russia has been our geopolitical foe for much of the 20th century and up until recently um, didn't seem to pose too much of a threat um, by the foreign policy establishment. However, they've always kind of been a a pariah, um, largely because of the will by one man in particular, current Russian President Vladimir Putin, former KGB agent, um, who seems to have been on a one-man vendetta um, in restoring the former Soviet Union. Uh, Russia also has the largest amount of nuclear warheads in the world, and any escalations of tensions beyond Ukraine that would include U.S. or NATO, which is the Northern Atlantic Treaty Organization, um, forces could escalate into what would be World War III. I mean, don't we have nukes as well, though? They have more nukes than us? They have more nukes than us. Um... We have nukes as well, but that's that's the problem, right? Is um, you know mutually assured destruction, which was kind of the ultimate end of times type of concept that was discussed during the Cold War between the U.S. and Russia. That's the ultimate um, forbidden thing that we don't want to happen, and we don't want it to escalate to a nuclear war, which is why the West has been so careful already in this conflict. Um, Additionally, on the domestic front, uh, much of the U.S. is undergoing massive inflation with the costs of staples like food and fuel, and the U.S. gets a percentage of its oil and natural... I'm not going to lie, I thought you were saying the price of staples is really high, and I was like, that is a really specific thing to focus on at this (laughs) juncture, um, given the cost of everything else, but yeah, I'm sure maybe staples have gone up. Probably staples have gone up, but <laughs> fuel has also the price of fuel is at uh, decades high yes. clip, and um, we get a percentage of our oil and natural gas from Russia. Uh, so the economic sanctions that the Biden administration has levied against Russia um, does have an impact on the fuel prices here. Now, am I correct in 
understanding that a handful or at least several or at least a handful of our Congress has called for Biden to cut off our imports of Russian oil. Yeah, that's correct. Um, and, and I'll get into that when I discuss the reactions to the Russian invasion. But um, yes, um, we're okay, trying to... Okay, let's start from the beginning. How, how did we get here? Yeah, so that's a great question. So, it, you know, you people study Russian history and Russian foreign relations and get master's degree. So I'm going to try to succinctly uh, discuss this topic, but um, just know that this is a lot of information that I've tried to truncate into a minimal amount of time. So, uh, and to be clear, neither one of us have those degrees. Right, exactly. Um, a lot of Google searching went into, uh, went into this. So there's a lengthy history of relations between the two countries, uh, Ukraine and Russia, going back to the Kievan Rus era, which um, both countries claim their heritage uh, emanated from a group known as the Rus, which is a, uh, a group of people whose origins date back to the 10th century uh, under the Byzantine Church, so the, the Eastern Orthodox Church. And Kiev, or Kiev, uh, which it's sometimes pronounced, was the capital of the Kievan Rus people and is the capital of modern-day Ukraine. So right from the get-go, both countries share a common ancestry and a, a common lineage which will be important um, going forward in the history of the relationship. So fast forward a couple centuries into the end of the 20th century and the breakup of the former USSR or Soviet Union into several republics. Who broke those up? Let's, can we spend just like two minutes going on the USSR and why it's no longer the USSR? That's the Cold War, right? Yeah, that's the Cold War. So the Cold War is fought between the United States and the USSR. It, divided the world up into two spheres of influences, the West and the East. NATO, which I'll reference several times during this podcast, was a cooperation, a military and political alliance between the United States, Canada, and members of uh, Western Europe. And slowly but surely, after the fall of the USSR, annexed, or not annexed, but um, um, received members into its fold that were former members of the USSR. USSR was a group of countries with Russia being the modern day Russia being the leading member um, that were all aligned over the concept of communism, um, having state controlled economies, and were aligned with Eastern values. And that was Gorbach- under Gorbachev. It was under several individuals, um, starting with Stalin, um, and then um, Gorbachev was the president of. The um, of the USSR uh, during the, the the end, you the know, Reagan era, Ronald Reagan, you know, tear down the wall. The wall was the Berlin Wall when they had divided up Germany. Um, but uh, suffice it to say that the USSR, the United Soviet, it was a, a unification of Soviet republics. So each of these republics, the Russian, modern Russian Federation, and Ukraine being part of them, um, were united. Uh, much like what you would see in modern day the European Union, where mm. you have independent states that are all um, under one umbrella, um, and so due to uh, you know what. So how do we get them to break up? Yeah, so because of economic uh, issues within the USSR, um, 
kind of what proved to be how communism does not work. Um, the there was a period of opening and finally a declaration of um, frustrations of people within the USSR that they didn't want to be under Moscow's rule anymore. Finally, the Soviet Union in 1990-1991 dissolved, um, and many of these countries were then left on their own um, seeking independence from alignment with Russia. So think of it as if, if the United States decided to dissolve its unity under a federal government and the All 50, states the 50 different states so. tried to become independent republics. Oh, Texas would love that. <laughs> yes. Um, so uh, during this, the dissolution of the Soviet bloc, the two nations had ongoing relations, including the disarmament of Ukraine. Remember I said that Russia has the largest amount of nuclear warheads in the world. Um, during the breakup of the USSR, Ukraine had about a third of those nuclear warheads. Currently, it has none. What happened to them? Um, so during, uh, as part of these negotiations, um, control of those warheads were shifted to Russia. Uh, and in addition... Um, well, that feels unfair. Russia was like, cool, cool, cool. You can be a country, but uh, we'll take your nukes. These are part of peace negotiations, and that... You can take people's nukes. Like, oh, for peace, I'll take your nukes. I think the idea, too, was with with Western influence that there was a period of an overall desire for disarmament, meaning that we wanted to get rid of all of our nuclear warheads. But we didn't get rid of it, which game we just collated them all with Russia. Control over nuclear warheads is a very um, difficult thing, and... Um, as I'll get into in just a little bit, um, some of the Ukrainian heads of state were very pro-Russian, so I think a, a mixture of they were inclined to just get rid of nuclear warheads, but also inclined to Give appease to Russia at the time. Um, other uh, relation uh, sticking points have included military disarmament between the two countries and just overall economics. But the key theme between the relationship from um, former Soviet Union up till today has been Ukraine's um, teetering position uh, it, it caught in between East and West, um, and whether their leadership wanted to be pro-West, uh, pro-NATO, and want to join the European Union or EU, um, and then also dealing with um, their relationship with Russia and remaining in Moscow's orbit of influence. Okay, so, I mean, I know enough to know that Zelensky is the current leader of Ukraine and Europe, they've asked to be a part of the European Union and they've kind of agreed to speed up their ascension into that but getting to that point in the war the last 20 years what's been going on in like recent history yeah so starting in the early 2000s um, Russia which at the time was also led by Vladimir Putin who you'll see how long has this Dick been in charge. He's been in charge for a really long time, and he ought, he moves in positions within government, whether it's president, which in the Russian form of government is the head of state and head of government. Uh, he's also served as prime minister and various other positions within Russian leadership. Oh, I didn't realize that. I thought he was just always top dog or whatever. No, there, there are other people that are important and, and will play a role. So in 2003, Russia attempted to integrate Ukraine into a new Russian-led single economic space, but then 
the president of Ukraine at the time, Viktor Yushchenko, objected and cited issues between the two countries, including gas and oil disputes, and indicated Ukraine's growing interest in cooperation with the EU and a bid to join NATO. Oh, so they've been trying to join NATO for a long time. Yeah. So, okay, did that bid get... Is that the same bid that's been ongoing? Or, like, has there been multiple bids and, like, rejections? It's essentially the same ongoing bid and, and, and discussion whether to join NATO as well as to join EU. So they've been trying to do this since 2003 and all of a sudden Russia decides that's the reason they're going to war? Well, I'll get to all oh that. It's God. not all of a sudden. That's why I started going back at least 20 years. So fast forward to 2008... Russia goes to war with the nation of Georgia, which is an Eastern European country, former member of the Soviet Union, and a similar story to Ukraine, seeking to have independent, um, a pro-Western type of economy, independence from Russia, think of it as a a breakaway type of country, and then Russian Prime Minister Putin accused Ukraine of supplying... um, military weapons and advisors to Georgia during what was called the South Ossetia War. Ukrainian officials denied the allegations supplying evidence uh, to rebut this information. Furthermore, um, at the same time, the U.S. supported Ukraine's bid to join NATO, and at the time Russia objected and implied that modern-day Ukraine was actually an artificial creation made up of territories surrounding countries including Poland, the Czech Republic, Romania, and most importantly, Russia. So this is all to say that Russia was trying to um, use an informational war to uh, delegitimize. delegitimize Ukraine, but also um, to paint them at odds with Russia um, during another conflict where Ukraine was not a main player. Okay, so we have Georgia. What does that have to do with... So, like, I guess in my recent history, Crimea, that's the first Ukrainian issue I recall in recent memory. Yeah, so Crimea is very important. So now we get into the early 2010s. This is where... Was that long ago? That's right. Yeah. You know, I talked about changes in Ukrainian administration, and we talked about the previous president being very favorable to the EU and NATO. There's a regime change in Ukraine, and um, President Viktor Yanukovych is now elected as president. And by most experts, he's described as the most pro-Russian and neo-Soviet president to have ever been elected in modern-day Ukraine. And this was due to close alignment with then-Russian president Dmitry Medvedev. Now, remember I said that... Pro- not the tennis player Medvedev. Not the tennis okay, player. Okay. Um, he would be a little too young to have been president at the time. And you remember I said that Putin wasn't always in charge, but he was always kind of in power. Yeah. At this time, Putin becomes prime minister but it's still very closely aligned with, with Medvedev. Uh, what's, the, what's the difference between president and prime minister as far as being in charge? The president is in charge. He's the head of state. He's the head of government. He's Okay. He, the buck stops with the president. Okay. Uh, so, you know, as to Yanukovych, the Ukrainian president, both Medvedev and Putin indicated that re- after his election, um, relations between Russia and Ukraine were the best they had ever been. Ooh. However, things start to get rocky um, in the early 2010s due to economic integration and an event called the Euro Maiden. Never heard of it. You're about to. So in 2013, the Ukraine pursued both an observer status in the Russian-led Eurasian Economic Union. Think of it as a Russian-led European Union. Uh, it was a customs union between Belarus, 
Kazakhstan, and Russia, as well as trying to continue along with the associate, what's called an associate agreement or a non-binding transitionary step with the European Union. So they're trying to have it both ways. Okay. However, in September of 2013, uh, Russia warned Ukraine that if it went forward with EU membership, Ukraine would face financial catastrophe through a trade war with Russia. So Russia's threatening to, to ruin Ukraine's economy. And then November of that year, Ukrainian President Yanukovych suspended preparations for an agreement with the EU to seek closer ties with Russia. Russia. Okay. So he tilts back in favor of Russia. Now this leads to what becomes known as the Euromaidan. Major protests in Kiev, the Ukrainian capital, by pro-EU Ukrainians known as Euromaidan, which was named after, and I'm going to probably mispronounce this, so apologies, Maiden Nizals Nosti, which in English is Independence Square. So these protests in Independence Square led to a larger revolution known as the Revolution of Dignity in 2014, in which President Yanukovych is overthrown. So this pro-Russian Ukrainian president is overthrown because of those protests. So it's important to also take into consideration the demographic makeup of Ukraine. Ukraine, um, largely due to its position, has a large uh, Russian-speaking and ethnic Russian population. And these live in two specific areas, Crimea in the south, which we've heard of, and then the Donbass region, which we've heard of more, more recently here in Western news. So in Crimea in 2014, as a backlash to Euro Maiden, ethnic Russians living in the Ukrainian area um, staged their own protests in oppositions to what had occurred in Kiev a year earlier. So um, Russian military ended up assisting those uprisings to help the ethnic Russians. And in March 2014, Russia recognized Crimea as its own sovereign state and proceeded to formally annex the peninsula of Ukraine. Ukraine responded with its own sanctions against Russia and a campaign to not buy Russian products. At the time, under the Obama administration here in the U.S., we also levied sanctions against Russia for its acts, but little did we know that it would lead to a much larger overt act here today. I mean, we really didn't know. I don't think we did. I mean, it's... It's kind of unfathomable in the modern era for one country to go around annexing parts of sovereign states. It's just something that's not done. That's why you've seen on the news such a huge backlash from international organizations like the United Nations. But no one did anything with Crimea. We did some like cute little sanctions, but like nobody cared in 2014. Well, it's. I don't think anyone has stopped caring. It's just ratcheted up to full-out war. I mean, the Ukrainian military has been fighting separatists in Crimea and in the Donbass region since that time. It's not stopped being important. It's just there have been some other things that have been on the forefront of American news, okay. like COVID-19, etc. So back to 2014 and the Donbass region. So there was a hot war between pro-Russian rebels backed by the Russian military and the armed forces of Ukraine um, beginning in April of 2014. Now, this battle was interrupted by multiple ceasefires in 2015 between the government and Kiev and what has now become known as the Donetsk People's Republic and Luhansk People's Republic. So these are the so-called mini-states that are so- operating as in the semi-autonomous Donbass region. Well, how does that stuff connect to today's war? Yeah, so it's, it's very important remembering Donbass because in the 
days leading up to the Russian invasion, Putin observed or formally recognized these mini-states' so-called Declaration of Independence. So it was kind of like he was doing with Crimea, but then like he did it, and then JK, LOL, he just started bombing the entire country. That's right. Crimea was a foothold. So it's not the same playbook. It seems to be an exact playbook, whereas Crimea, Russian, ethnic Russians in Crimea have um, declared their so-called independence, likely due to large influence from Moscow, and then Russia, I, you know, recognizes their independence. So they become independent countries for a short period and then swiftly move into the Russian sphere of influence. So let's, let's talk about what happened now. So going into the spring of 2021, just last year, Russia commenced a major military buildup near the Russian-Ukrainian border, uh, followed by a second buildup between October 2021 and February of this year, just last month. So, despite the buildup, the Russian government repeatedly denied plans to invade Ukraine. They just were um, claiming that these were for for military exercises or for defensive postures and no intentions of invading. However, in December of last year, 2021, the U.S. intelligence uh, community um, released intelligence of Russian invasion plans, including satellite photographs showing Russian troops and equipment near the border. This report also included the existence of Russian lists of key sites and individuals to be killed upon invasion. So while they were saying one thing publicly, it seemed that it was clear that they were planning an invasion. So let's discuss like Russia's justifications for this war. Sure. So in the months leading up to the invasion, the Russian government through Putin and other spokespeople made multiple security demands of Ukraine, NATO, and non-NATO European Union members. These included promises that Ukraine would not join NATO, as well as reduction of NATO troops and equipment in Eastern Europe generally. Why is it important to them? So there's this whole concept that Putin is claiming that NATO and the United States are overreaching into Moscow's sphere of influence and thus creating a security threat. Again, remember I said it's mutually assured destruction. Both Moscow and the West want to stay as clear from each other as possible in order to not create a hot war between Russia and the West. So that's one justification, security. Putin also made a speech um, and spoke about discrimination against Russian-speaking Ukrainians. Again, remember I said that there's a large Russian-speaking and Russian ethnic community within the south and east of Ukraine. So, you know, Putin has said that Russia phobia is a first step towards genocide. So this discrimination could lead to the Ukrainian government's genocide of Russian-speaking individuals living in Ukraine. And Putin specifically cited the Donbass region in these statements. The Russian ambassador to the U.S. also accused the U.S. of condoning forced cultural assimilation of Russia in Ukraine. So again, this is the whole you know, fear of Western influence in Ukraine. Okay, but haven't I seen on the news that Putin's justifying going into war to denazify Ukraine, but Zelensky's Jewish? Yeah, so that's a great point. So in his address on February 21st, uh, Putin said to the that the Ukrainian society, quote, was faced with the rise of far-right nationalism and that the country was led by neo-Nazis and again reiterated that Ukraine lacked genuine statehood. Remember, I said that he had previously made comments several years ago that Ukraine was basically a made-up country. I mean, it's a made-up country, but they've also tried to do business with that country. So is it made-up or is it not? Well, Putin would claim that it's made-up and it's it, it's part of Russia, but, you know, obviously... Are all countries made-up? <clears throat> 
obviously, yeah. obviously, Ukraine would would say that you know they're they're sovereign and and have a right to exist. So while it's true that Ukraine does in fact have a far right fringe, including neo Nazi Azov battalion and right sector, analysts say that Putin has greatly exaggerated the scale of this issue. And there's really no widespread support for this ideology in the government, military, or electorate. And to your point, current Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, who is Jewish, responded to Putin by saying that his grandfather served in the Soviet army fighting against the Nazis, and that three of his family members did in fact die in the Holocaust. So in fact, this claim that uh, Russian soldiers are going into Ukraine to denazify the country doesn't seem to hold water at all. So, this is all very recent, so let, let's talk about like what's happened over the past few weeks. You know, I just talked about how Putin made this address on February 21st, and between February 21st to the 23rd, tensions have boiled. Putin announced the uh, recognition of the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics, like I talked about, those two Donbass region statelets that broke away from the Ukraine, and he directed the deployment of Russian troops into the Donbass regions for what he has called peacekeeping missions. They're not peacekeeping, I mean... Thank you, Lilith. That's a very stupid point. Sorry, everyone. You will hear Lilith throughout this with her very, very strong stance anti-Russia, rightfully so. They're not. They're bombing civilians. How is this a peacekeeping mission? Like what we've seen on TV. I don't understand how this is peacekeeping. They're the ones who broke the peace, and now they're claiming they're trying to make the peace. Right. So I think that the the use of peacekeeping mission, the. The international community has <clears throat> found it to be comical. I mean, this language was condemned by the United Nations Security Council. It's just a way to propagandize the use of um, military assets to create a war. They're mo- the, what he's claiming is that they're moving into the Donbass region to protect ethnic Russians. But they're not just in the Donbass region. They're in several major cities all throughout Ukraine. That's right. And this has all moved relatively quickly, so when he was saying peacekeeping mission, that was just an opening salvo. So the next day, on February 22nd, uh, U.S. President Joe Biden stated that the beginning of a Russian invasion of Ukraine has occurred, and other Western leaders condemned the move. That same day, President Zelensky ordered a conscription of Ukrainians reservists, and the next day, the Ukrainian parliament, the Verkhovna Radna, proclaimed a 30-day nationwide state of emergency, excluding the occupied territories in Donbass and the mobilization of all reservists in the armed forces. President Zelensky then made a televised speech addressing the citizens of Russia in Russian, pleading with them to ask their government to prevent war. He also refuted claims by the Russian government about the presence of neo-Nazis in the Zelensky government and stated that he had no intention of attacking the Donbass region. But that hasn't quelched anything. I mean, it's continued to ratchet up. That's right. On the very next day on February 24th, at around 6 a.m. Moscow time, Putin announced that he had decided to invade Ukraine to launch what he called a special military operation. And to your point, within minutes of Putin's announcement, there were explosions in Ukraine's major cities of Kiev, Kharkiv, Odessa, and, like we said, in the Donbass. Zelensky promises not to attack the Donbass region, but then Putin does? That's right. In the name of protecting the Donbass. In the name of peacekeeping missions. It's like, daddy hits me because he loves me. Sure. Right. Following the attack, Zelensky announced the introduction of martial law in Ukraine. So following Zelensky's announcement of the introduction of martial law and a general mobilization of all males between 18 and 60, Russian troops then entered Ukraine from four main directions. North from Belarus, which 
Belarus is another country that is north of Ukraine. But, but they're pro-Putin, pro-Russia. That's right. Bel- Are we sanctioning Belarus to the same extent we're sanctioning Russia? I don't know if it's to the same extent, but we are sanctioning Belarus. Okay. And Belarus has has had its own checkered history with Russia. It's just at the present moment, their current leader is aligned with Moscow. Sure. Ukraine was also attacked from the northeast from Russia, with troops heading towards Kharkiv, and east from the Donetsk People's Republic and Luhansk People's Republic, the Donbass region that we talked about, as well as from south in the annexed region of Crimea. So as... You know, you look on CNN or Fox or any other news outlet and they show you the map of Ukraine and Russian troops moving into the country, you'll see that what Putin effectively did was surround Ukraine with pro-Russian areas, some that he's all, that he made on his own, Crimea and the Donbass, by um, recognizing this country, those areas as independent nations and then effectively annexing them to Russia and then having... Belarus under the Moscow sphere of influence. I mean, what I've seen on the news and read about just seems horrific. What, what is the world doing about? Are we really? Are we in World War Three? Are we going towards World War Three? What would be crossing that line to make us there? What What are the international community doing? Yeah. So in terms of like who's actually fighting Russia, Ukraine's military, to their credit, has stood their ground and defended large swaths of the country. They're in a hot war, um, but the, the international community, again, to prevent direct Western combatants against Russian combatants, um, they've basically done a number of things. So during the buildup of Russian equipment and troops on Ukraine's border, members of NATO increased the rates of weapons delivery to Ukraine. President Biden used what's known as the Presidential Drawdown Authority in August and December of 2021 to provide $260 million in aid to Ukraine. And these included um, deliveries of javelins and other anti-armor weapons, small arms, and various calibers of ammunition and other equipment. Following the invasion on February 24th of this year, nations began making further commitments of armed deliveries, including Belgium, Czech Republic, Estonia, France, Greece, the Netherlands, Portugal, and the UK. Poland also delivered military supplies to Ukraine, some of these countries are former USSR countries. Are is their motivation that if, if Ukraine falls, they're next? Like, is there that concern, or do we think Putin's going to stop with Ukraine in the immediate? Yeah, so that's an excellent question. Every country that I just discussed is a member of NATO, and there are other countries that are not members of NATO that also have been sending military aid. But more broadly, that is a concern. I mean, we saw it with... Um, you know, our discussion in the 2008 war in Georgia, um, the Crimea annexation, what's going on in Ukraine. The fear is that if Putin continues to be successful, that he could look to start annexing other countries. Um, Moldova is right next to Ukraine. Um, the Baltic countries, Estonia, Lithuania, and Latvia, which are former USSR members, could be in Putin's crosshairs. And I think that's where the West is really concerned, is that there seems to be a red line that if Putin moves into current NATO member territory, then you would see Western um, combatants going against Russia. But there's a difference, because Ukraine... A, what is it, Article 5 of NATO, that the second Putin attacks any of those countries, he's at war with every country in NATO, which would 
essentially be World War Three, but Ukraine t- is not part of NATO, which is why we haven't sent troops. That's exactly right. Okay. Yeah, you just you so just it's not as easy to way. invade those other former USSR countries because that triggers a larger military response on a global scale. Right. By necessity. Correct. Okay. So let's talk about what the West and others have been doing in addition to sending military aid. So we referred a lot in the news about sanctions. Western countries and others began imposing limited sanctions on Russia when it recognized the independence of the Donbass prior to February 24th. And then with the commencement of attacks on February 24th, large numbers of additional countries began applying sanctions with the aim of crippling the Russian economy. Sanctions are wide-ranging, targeting individuals, banks, businesses, monetary exchanges, bank transfers, exports, and imports. Specifically, on the 22nd of February, President Biden announced restrictions against four Russian banks, as well as on corrupt billionaires known as oligarchs close to Putin. And more recently, the U.S. has placed personal sanctions on Putin and his foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov. There's also been actions to cut Russia off from a program known as SWIFT. Yeah, I heard a lot about that in the news, but so all I think I know about that is it's banks talking to each other? Essentially. So European countries have called for Russia to be cut off from SWIFT, which is the Society for Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunication, which is the global messaging network for international payments. Effectively, whenever money crosses borders, this is the way that banks talk to one another in order to clear the payments. Is this having any effect? Yeah, so some EU members, um, there's been, you know, some hesitancy into having this done um, presently. So, two reasons. Some EU member states have been reluctant to do this because uh, European lenders held most of the nearly $30 billion um, in foreign banks, which uh, would create, you know, a risk exposure. Basically, they wouldn't be able to clear their money um, because a lot of their um, assets were being held in Russia. And then the second reason was that China has developed an alternative to SWIFT called CIPS. Um, And so if we were to weaponize SWIFT and cut Russia off from being a part of um, a European-led banking communication system, it would then likely join CIPS and effectively we would start creating again a bipolar type of financial system, Russia and China and one, Europeans on the other. I mean, why did China create, I mean, I guess, why did China create SIPs in the first place if not to compete with SWIFT? I think that's exactly why they created CIPS in the first place, and that's why there was that risk calculation. However, um, Germany, which plays a prominent role within the European Union and the European financial system writ large, agreed that Russia should be blocked from participating in SWIFT. Um, The whole program went forward with uh, removing Russian banks. Wasn't Germany initially really hesitant to do anything about this because of all the oil they get from Russia? Yeah, so that takes us into our next action that was taken against Russia, which deals with the Nord Stream 2. So the European Union, notably Germany, receives major oil exports from Russia. They're basically reliant on Russia to receive um, the power for their country. So um, initially, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz was recently elected to this position, was um, hesitant to block the major gas pipeline. So Scholz was initially reluctant to, to block the major pipeline. However, after the invasion of the Donbass by Schultz Russia... Scholz is the new Merkel. Scholz is the new Merkel. Scholz authorized an administrative block, which 
led to the prevention of the activation of Nord Stream 2, leaving the pipeline insolvent and thus further uh, damaging the Russian economy. Speaking of oil, the United States itself has um, receives a percentage of its uh, fuel from Russia. Currently, a bipartisan group of lawmakers are drafting legislation to ban Russian oil imports. Um, but that would obviously have to make its way through Congress and then get signed by well, President Biden. What's happening with airspace? I keep seeing Zelensky asking for no-fly zones. Other countries have implemented no-fly zones. Where are we at? What's happening? Yeah, so to date, uh, the United Kingdom and several other European countries have banned Russian aircraft from entering their own airspace. It's two different issues. It's Russian aircraft over other sovereign nations' airspace and then a request for a no-fly zone over Ukraine. During his State of the Union, which we covered in our last episode, President Biden announced that the U.S. was joining the U.K. and other European countries of preventing Russian aircraft from flying over the U.S. in an attempt to harm yet another aspect of the Russian economy. The no-fly zone, however, seems to be a red line that would require military assets or anti-air assets to help enforce Russians from flying over Ukraine. And that would seem to be a step in the direction of war. So while Zelensky is asking for assistance with a no-fly zone, NATO has been enforcing hesitant and enforcing a no-fly zone. Okay. Uh, NATO has been hesitant to, to move forward. And then finally, another aspect, which I don't think has gotten a lot of press coverage, but um, Ukraine and Russia, Crimea specifically, are bordered by um, the Black Sea, which is a major port um, for commerce, but also a naval strategic asset. Um, and so Turkey, which is also a member of NATO, uh, announced on February 28th that it would limit Russian access to the Black Sea and has already begun blocking Russian frigates from entering from Turkish ports. What's a frigate? So a frigate is a, is a ship. It's, a, it's either a military or a, a commerce transportation vessel. Mm. Okay. So who who's Team Russia in this? Yeah, so I think the international community um, publicly is decrying Russians act, Russia's activity. However, a few important players um, have been a bit tepid in their response. And unimportant players like Tucker Carlson. That's right. Uh Tucker Carlson uh, seems to be very much uh, pro-Russia at the moment and claims that Ukraine is a failed state. Um, But um, from a a national perspective, China and India seem to be um, not as out front um, in being uh, in opposing Russia's um, actions. So uh, China has blamed the U.S. and NATO for the current situation essentially claiming that they've antagonized Russia into taking their actions. China makes sense. I'm not surprised at that based on what I've seen in the news. And from what I understand, the outcome of this could be interesting for China with its relationship with Taiwan. Yeah, that's right. So China sees itself as the heir apparent to the USSR in creating a bipolar world where you have U.S. and the West on one side and China and its own sphere of influence on the other, China also has its own strongman in Xi Jinping, who has um, been re-elected as president, and much like Putin, has ascended his way into power. He's seen as a, as a strongman. And so there have been 
reports of um, personal conversations between Putin and Xi that would seem to uh, imply a de facto alliance between the two countries. They're both members of the UN Security Council, both permanent members of the UN Security Council and the two countries tend to vote in the same way. So while China is uh, has publicly decried what Russia has done and says that you know the whole situation should be resolved through a diplomatic dialogue and should come to an end as soon as possible, it still has to ba- balance its power um, between um, its relationship with Putin and um, these acts of, of, of war. And like you said, um, not to mention China is very interested to see how this plays out given its own interests in places like Taiwan. Another country that has not like strongly condemned Russia is India, which in other aspects is very pro-Western. So the Prime Minister Narendra Modi um, appealed for an immediate secession of violence in Ukraine at the United Nations, but he did not fully condemn Russia. And apparently that had to do with um, an impending trade agreement with Russia in which uh, Russia would use rupees, which is the national dollar for India, to avoid the impact of Western sanctions on Russia. So it was within India's economic interests to not fully condemn Russia. Where are we seeing the spillover though? Because I know I've seen random things like someone or some organization took Putin's black belt away. Yeah, so it's been interesting. There's a lot of politics that are played in in, in sport and entertainment. So a couple of examples. The International Olympic Committee called about, I called other sporting federations to move or cancel sports um, that are planned to be in Russia or its ally Belarus. And on March 3rd, Russian and Belarusian athletes were banned from competing in the upcoming 2022 Winter Paralympic Games. To your point about the Black Belt, the International Judo Federation suspended Putin's status as, quote, the honorary president and ambassador of the International Judo Federation, thus denying him his status as a Black Belt in the sport of judo. And then finally, soccer, which is very important on a global scale, the UEFA, which is the governing body for European football, decided to relocate the Champions League final from St. Petersburg, Russia, to St. Denis, France. And the national teams of Poland, Czech Republic, and Sweden all have refused to play matches with the Russian team. What's going on inside of Russia? What are the what are the people what do Russians think about all of this? Is it divided? Is it are they super pro Putin in this war? Are they against it? What's happening in the borders? So I think in addition to sanctions, this really is the wild card in determining how far Putin is going to go with carrying out his war. As has historically been the case, Russia's greatest asset, in addition to being cold as heck, is just its sheer volume of people. And Putin has done what he can internally with Russia to quell any sort of opposition. But given the proximity of Ukraine to Russia, there's a lot of carryover. People that are Ukrainian nationals living in Russia, people with family ties between both countries, and just the sheer horror that people are finding in bombing and shelling civilians. So in Russia, almost 2,000 Russians in about 60 cities across the country were detained by police involved in protests against the invasion, according to OVD Info, which is an independent Russian news organization aimed at combating political persecution. Russia has its state-owned media, so it's very difficult to get information about what's going on in Russia outside of these organizations. 
further thousands of technology workers, medical workers, architects, teachers, artists, scientists, actors, directors, and other creatives um, have signed petitions calling for Putin's government to stop the war. So there is definitely a movement within the country to prevent Russia from going any further from where it already has. Where do we go? What's what's going to... I mean, I guess, uh, crystal ball, where do we go from here? Yeah, so at the time of this recording, we're in day nine of the Russian invasion. And I think, to their credit, the Ukrainian people, led by President Zelensky, are holding firm. Uh, but it's clear they're outmatched in numbers and sophistication by the Russian military. So... It's a, it's a hope that the Ukrainian military can continue to hold. And it's interesting reading stories about civilians who have freely joined the Ukrainian military to help protect their homeland. What's also important to note is that the crisis has also led to mass migration of refugees into neighboring Eastern European. I mean, within the days leading up to and after the invasion, there have been thousands of men, women, and children who have flooded into neighboring countries to try to avoid the fighting. International organizations like the UN and NATO are still trying to continue to figure out the best way to approach this issue while trying to avoid NATO members coming into direct contact with Russia. And if that were to happen again, that's the threat of a possible World War III. I think the big wild card here is nuclear war. Uh, Putin has already put his nuclear military units on high alert, and that both works as a deterrent against Western potential overreach into the country, as well as a threat that Putin means serious business. Yeah. I mean, I know we've, this has been our probably our longest podcast yet. There's so many aspects we didn't cover. This could go on for hours, hence why I've kept my questions to, to a minimum. I just feel like this is a really interesting 30,000-foot view of what's happening. Yeah. I mean, tons of uh, research went into this, and it's it's unfolding by the day. But, it, you know, to kind of cap it off, uh, we married politics, we stand with the Ukrainian people. And we'll continue to monitor the situation. It's horrendous, but this is this is one of the most important uh, foreign policy issues of our time. So we hope you continue to watch the news and look out for areas in which you can help get involved. Be informed. Stay informed. Stay informed with what's going on in the news. And uh, our thoughts and prayers go out to the Ukrainian people.